Well, it's kind of sad and it's kind of good. We're finishing up our series on the church. And I'm kind of glad because I wanted to preach a whole series on every sermon. And uh, I've been having a nightmare every week trying to not say everything I want to say. And so I'm glad I can just go back into Luke and creep through the passage at a snail's pace and not have to worry about saying everything there is on a particular subject. Well, this morning we're looking at you and church discipline. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18, which is where we're going to launch from. Matthew chapter 18, which I'm sure a lot of you know as, quote, the church discipline passage. It was about five years ago when we started looking for a music pastor at Calvary Bible Church and um, we kind of had a process where there was kind of a committee and that committee would kind of screen people and then kind of send them on to me and then I'd kind of talk to them and then we'd kind of, you know, send them down line to the elders. And, uh, and I talked to several men and I was amazed at how little they knew about worship. I, I was pretty afford about it actually i would ask them basic bible questions about worship and what that meant and and these men were pastors of churches and didn't seem to have a clue about worship and i thought man is this, this how they all are um, you know you start getting discouraged after a while and um you know, they had no idea of shepherding. It's like all they wanted is, you know, their goal was to have professional sounding music and drama, you know. And um, so anyways, we were looking and going through. I was just looking for somebody, you know, with a biblical philosophy of ministry, understood what worship was, you know, understood key verses and, you know, just kind of the basics about worshiping and, and you know, just shepherding and how that works. Well, in the providence of God, God brought us the name of one Edward Willis. And uh, and so I called him up and, you know, he doesn't know me. I don't know him. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm Pastor Jack Hughes. And I kind of tell him a little about Calvary Bible Church. And uh, the, almost the first thing out of his mouth was he asked me a question. And what do you suppose that question was? Do you guys do church discipline? And I want you to know, when he asked that, I thought, oh, yes. <laughs> now, I tried to hold it all back and everything, you know. Well, yes, we do. But inside, inside, man, I was like, oh, this is a guy. I know it is. And uh, we've got to get him. Um, why? why? Why did that excite me? Why did that question, do you guys do church discipline, excite me? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it told me that Edward wanted to obey all the Bible. And you know, you may think, well, yeah, well, most churches don't. Secondly, it told me that he wanted to be involved in a church that actually loved people. Third, it told me that he wanted to be involved in a church that loved holiness and purity. And fourth, it told me he wanted to be involved in a church that wanted to worship in spirit and truth. And finally, it told me he wasn't a man pleaser. That one question is so critical. And you could, if you go shopping for churches, if you have to move somewhere, that is the question. Because it draws a line and separates about 90% of the churches out of consideration today. Now, if you are sitting out there going, how do you get all that out of that question? You're going to find out this morning. Now, before we look at 
the whole subject of church discipline, what I want to do is define two key concepts. These are pretty easy, but I want to get these out here because a lot of times if you don't understand these, then you're confused about everything else. The first is sin. What is sin? Sin is to violate the revealed will of God in either thought or deed to any degree. It's not just, you know, not murdering, not committing adultery, and not robbing banks. You know, those, those, you know, like, those are sins, but, you know, the rest, uh, that's not a big deal. No, any violation to any degree of God's infinite standard of holiness is a sin. So that's what we know about sin. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If your conscience is going off and you do it anyways, you're sinning. James 4.17 says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him is sin. You know what's right, you do what's wrong. It's a sin. 1 John 3.4 says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness, any violation of God's word. Now we know from past sermons in the series that all Christians sin. We saw that from 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 10. All Christians sin. And John actually says, if, if you say you don't have any sin, by the way, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. So does that mean when we talk about church discipline, everybody should be disciplined out of the church because we're all sinners? You know, who's going to be here on Sunday? And see, this is the whole confusion that a lot of people have when you start talking about church discipline because they go, well, if, if sinners are to be disciplined and I'm a sinner, hit me, you know, um, I'm the guy. Well, this is what you need to understand. There's a difference between Christians who sin, confess their sin, repent of it and pursue righteousness and sin and confess their sin and go through that process, which all Christians go through. And then the person who sins enjoys it, maybe hides it, enjoys it some more, doesn't confess it, doesn't repent of it. That person is what is called an unrepentant sin. And they are the candidate for church discipline. So this morning when we talk about the person in sin, that's who I'm talking about, not just your average Christian who sins all the time and confesses it and pursues righteousness. All right, now turn to Matthew 18. If you haven't already in your Bibles, you can find a Bible in the pew. If you don't have one, it'd be good to follow along as we go. Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Now here we have a very clear, simple, but inclusive text on church discipline. Probably one of the clearest as far as steps and procedures found anywhere else in the Bible. And from this text, we, we learn about three different categories 
of truth that you need to understand. First, we learn about the people involved in church discipline, the process of church discipline, and then the motive or purpose of church discipline. So let's look at these three, and then hopefully by the end, you'll kind of have a better understanding of church discipline. Look at verse 15, where we begin to understand um, the people involved in the whole process. If your brother sins... I'll just stop there. Notice that the first person you need to see is your brother. This is the person who sins. Now, obviously, he's not talking about somebody who sins and confesses. He's talking about somebody who sins and doesn't confess and repent of it. Otherwise, there'd be no need to confront them. We were all in the boat of sinning, but we're not all in the boat of sinning and not confessing or repenting of it. So the first person is the sinner. The second person mentioned in the text is you. Look at the beginning of verse 15. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you are the second person. That means all of you. That means me. It means every one of us. It is your job to do church discipline whenever you see your brother in sin. Now, there's something here that I need to talk about just because I know if I don't, there'll be 50 of you after the service. And that is your Bible might read, if you don't have the New American Standard Bible, sins against you. And that kind of is a little bit different because then I, you know, I don't need to do anything unless it's a direct sin against me. See, if it's just, if you see your brother in, in sin, if it's any sin, a generic sin, then we're responsible for any person who sins in any way that we see and won't turn from it. But if it's against you, then you don't have to deal with it because, you know, it's not about me. So it makes a real huge difference as far as the interpretation of this passage. And the question is, why would all these other versions translate it sins against you, and yet the New American Standard translate it sins? This is why. If you look up in verse 6, and you look at the whole context of the passage, this is what you see. First, the disciples are talking about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, you know, basically says the humble person who becomes like a child. And by the way, if anybody causes, he says, one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better if he put a millstone around his neck and jumped into the sea. The whole point here is that you need to humble yourself to be great and that you need to make sure you don't cause one of God's little ones, that is a fellow believer who believe in me, to stumble. Because you're going to be in trouble if you do. Uh, go try putting a millstone around your neck, a very large stone, and throw into, the neck, throw into the depths of the sea with it around your neck. And you'll have an idea of how much trouble you'll be in. So that's what he's saying here. Obviously, in this statement here, the little one, the believer, is being sinned against by somebody else. So that's one reason why they put it in here. Secondly, if you look at verses 7 through 11, it talks about stumbling blocks. Those people who sin against other people by leading them into sin. That's what a stumbling block is. Literally, a scandalon. Somebody who, by their behavior or word or tempting, leads one of God's little ones into sin. They sin against you. Not only that, if you look down past our text and you look all the way down to verse 21, right after our text, Peter 
came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And so we say, aha, I remember last week. I remember the bridge illustration. I remember if it's coming this way towards the bridge. And it's going that way after the bridge. And it's going that way under the bridge. So we should put in sins against you. Well, why wouldn't the NASB do that? Well, this is why. Because all the the the... The oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't have that phrase. Mm. Now you get into one of these difficulties where, uh, should I go with the ancient manuscripts or should I go with the context? Well, not only did they leave it out because of the ancient manuscripts, but if you look at verses 12 and 13, there is this little parable. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which um, have not gone astray. And then he talks about God not willing any of his little ones to perish. So in verses 12 through 14, the clear implied immediate near context is going after sheep who stray. And that is why the NSB translated it way, which I think is best. If you ever have to go with kind of the near context or the immediate near context, the immediate near context always carries more weight. So the good thing is, is the Bible teaches both views. So regardless of how you interpret this text, you're not off the hook. As we shall see, you don't get to say, well, I don't have to deal with anybody unless they sin against me personally, because we will see from other texts that, yes, you do. But I think this text is talking about sins in general, not any sin. There's other reasons. I'll give them to you in a minute. So now we have this person who sins and we have you, the person who sees the sin. A sin that has taken a place and the person hasn't turned from it. Maybe they have some habit. Maybe they have some deed. Maybe something you've come across somewhere. You realize, man, that guy's in sin and he doesn't seem to be turning from it or bothered by it or, you know, he's still doing it. Now, there is a third group of people which are involved sometimes. And look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, you take the one, then the Uh, you go to him in private and if he doesn't repent you take a couple more with you and here you have these one or two more with you which makes two or three including yourself and these are just a couple other people these are people who are brought in just to keep it private keep it small to deal with the person who is in unrepentant sin and what's interesting is the the text actually quotes from deuteronomy 19.5 which um, creates another problem because Deuteronomy 19, actually 1915, Deuteronomy 1915 is talking about a court of law that you cannot convict anybody by one verbal testimony. You have to have the verbal testimony of two or three to convict them in a court of law. Jesus quotes this verse and there is a question about its application. Is Jesus quoting this verse because he's saying what I want you to do is if you see somebody sin, go find somebody else who saw the same thing and bring them. Or is he saying, no, Jesus quotes this verse because what he is doing is saying, 
make sure there's two or three witnesses who testify to the second step of the confirmation, you know, of the confrontation. That's what the text is talking about. Jesus is saying it should be on the testimony of two or three witnesses that the person has been confronted a second time. Because a lot of times, you know, you're the person, you're the only person who sees it. Now, if you look at verse 17, it says, as if he refuses to listen to them, which tells us something else, it tells us that not only these one or two extras coming to witness the confrontation, they're participating in it because now the guy's not listening to them, plural, not just you. So all three are saying, brother, you need to turn, you need to turn. This is what the word of God says, turn, turn, turn. So really the question of the person being in sin is not being denied, it's just that they're refusing. Then, notice verse 17 also, if he refuses to listen to them, the one or two more you take with you, tell it to the church. And of course the church doesn't all have to be a first-hand witness either, of course they wouldn't be. But they all are witnesses to the confrontation and they all become participants in the confrontation process. So these are the people, just to have it clear in your mind, the person who's sinning. The person who sees it and goes to them. If they don't repent, one or two more. If they don't repent, the church. Now there's another group, which we'll look at in a minute, that's kind of implied. We'll get there as we now move on to our second point. Understand the process of church discipline. You may be thinking, well, I think I have it down. Well, we'll see. Now, when we look at the process, there are things in the text here which are kind of implied, but which are not stated explicitly. And so we're just going to kind of go down through the text and kind of just uh, make a, a kind of a scenario that you can kind of picture in your mind, because this is really critical, because a lot of times churches don't do this right. People are disciplined out of churches, and they say, yeah, they, they didn't even tell me what my sin was. They just told me I was kicked out. Okay, then they've sinned against him. Or, yeah, they somebody saw me doing that, and then they went to talk to the elders, and then the elders read my name, and there was no second step. See, you, there has to be the procedure according to the scriptures. Otherwise, you end up sinning against the person who is in sin. Okay, look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Here is the first step of church discipline. Um... A lot of times when you hear people talk about church discipline, what do you think of? You, know, you think of one of the elders coming up after service and you know me saying there's an announcement and the elder comes up and gets out a piece of paper and you're thinking, oh no. And then the elder says, we're really sorry to tell you this this morning, but you know, so-and-so's fault and there's a big somber, you know, damp rag type of announcement at the end of the service and everybody leaves going, ooh. Um, That's what most people think about church discipline, this final step. But really, almost the, all all church discipline, almost without exception, except for just a minor case, this all happened when you see your friend and you say, hey, you know what? That's, that's not right. And they say, really? It's like, yeah, the scriptures say this. They go, man, I, I need to stop. And you go, all right, you've done church discipline. You've done church discipline. Whenever you talk to anybody about anything in their life that is contrary to the word of God and you're doing church discipline. So church discipline, what should come to your mind when you hear church discipline is, oh yeah, I have to make sure I go to people in gentleness and kindness and confront them when I see them in sin. That's church discipline. That's what happens here all the time. 
It's only the rare exception that they're so stubborn, they won't turn after the one, after the three, and then it has to come to the entire church. But let's just say there's this new believer. There's a new believer and, you know, the guy's growing by leaps and bounds, but he's still got a lot of worldliness clinging on to him. And, you know, you hear him out there and he's using Jesus and God and Lord and kind of irreverent ways, kind of, you know, as a filler word, as kind of an exclamation mark. And you're, you're kind of, so you go up to him and you say, you know, you know, I, do you realize you can use the Lord's name this way and that and say, you know, God, and this is, this is, this doesn't honor God. This is irreverent. This is really to take or use the Lord's name in vain. And the guy says, really? Says, Man, I, I'm sorry. I, I've just always done that. I never really thought about it. I, I, you know, man, um, I'm going to try not to do it. Could you hold me accountable? It's like, yeah, I'll hold you accountable. If I, if I hear you doing, I'll tell you. He says, okay, it's over. You've done church discipline. It's over. That happens here all the time. Praise God. But sometimes, look at verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now let's say you go to the guy, and you talk to him, and he says, listen, I don't mean anything by it. I used to put all sorts of you know, expletives on the end. But man, those have completely dropped off. You seem like you're being a little judgmental. You know, God knows my heart. And so, judge not, lest you be judged. And he walks away. Then what? No, they walk away and they're thinking, well, I shut them down. And they're, you know, kind of in my face, you know. I mean, I've got my freedoms and whatever. That usually causes you to do something, which is, oh, I gotta, I gotta go get some more people here. Um, and you gotta go deal with it more. And then usually examine your own, and say, do I have any, Lord, do I have any beams in my eye? You know, am I walking around with this huge beam, this big sin that I'm not confessing in my life? It really causes you to examine yourself. If you ever get involved in this, the first thing you think of, well, I'm a sinner too. And, you know, I'm imperfect. And, you know, I haven't sinned until three minutes ago. And, you know, I mean, we just, we're constantly looking at yourself. And this is good because it causes you to examine your own heart. And then you do, you get right with the Lord, and then you're going to go after the guy. So then you find a couple more people, and you all come to the guy and say, you know, we've been hearing you say this. You know, I talked to you last time. You didn't respond very well. You know, Exodus 27 and Deuteronomy 5.11 say, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Maybe you go to some other scriptures that talk about not treating God holy or not reverencing him or his name. You give him that. You give him that information. And the other people saying, you know, he's right. You need to stop this. This isn't good. It's really a bad testimony. It's a bad, it's, it's worldly. You need to quit. And the guy goes, man, I know you're right. Because after the first confrontation, my conscience has really been bothering me. And I've been thinking, man, I was just being prideful. I was being stubborn, man. I am sorry. Would you forgive me? And uh, please help me so I don't do it. It's over. You've done church discipline. I mean, it's you and a couple, one or two other people, and that's all, and it's over. This happens all the time. This, those two first steps are what happen all the time, and you never heard about, hear about them, and that's good. 
That's good. But what if the guy gets angry? It says, what? What are you guys doing now? Ganging up on me? You guys are legalists, man. You're, you're, you're Pharisees. I have my liberties in Christ. Besides, the Old Testament doesn't even apply anymore. And that's your interpretation of those verses. I disagree. And he walks away. Then what? Look at verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, in order for this to happen, you need to get the leadership involved since the leadership is given charge to rule, manage, give oversight, shepherd the flock. So that's when you have to go to the elders. And then the elders, because they are there to make sure things are done in a proper and orderly way, investigate. They're going to ask questions. They're going to talk to you. They're going to talk about the confrontation. They're going to talk about the sin, what you told them, what they said, how they responded. They're going to go to that person. They're going to say, hey, did these people come to you? They show you this. And usually it involves another confrontation because if the elders find out, yeah, it's true. And it's not just a bit of legalism or a misinterpretation of scripture. Then the elder says, you know, you do need to turn. And the person says, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to speak any way I want. And you can't tell me what to do. Then, okay, the elder set a date. And they come up before the church. And they say, hey, we have a brother in Christ. And this is his sin. And these are the scriptures it's violating. And now we're telling you. That the question is, why? Why? The man clearly falls into perfectly the example of the parable of the wayward sheep. Because people at this time, when they start getting that much heat, what do they do? They quit coming to church. They quit answering their phone. They hide. They are sheep that have gone astray. And now, the church is involved in fetching them back. The entire church is to get involved. It's not just the elders. The elders just make the announcement. And this is where a lot of people get confused because they think that church discipline is something the elders do to people. No. Church discipline is something all of us do because we love each other. And when the elders come up here and they make an announcement... That person who is in sin should get, you know, in a church this size, you know, six, eight hundred emails and cards and notes and letters and visits. They should be bombarded by a whole army of people, legion of them, saying, brother, you know, this is wrong. And now we are praying for you. We love you. Please turn from your sin. His mailbox should just be jammed packed every day with bundles of letters and notes and cards. And his answer machine should be stuffed full every time he comes home. Oh, 95 (laughs) messages. You know, he, he turns on his cell phone and he's got a voicemail. No, he's got 75 All from loving people with encouraging words, exhorting him to repent and confess and turn from his sin. This is why the elders tell it to the church. Not so you can go, ooh, dainty morsel. And talk about it after church. Ooh, that person, you know, they were in sin. Mm -hmm. 
Not too long ago, we had to practice church discipline, the fourth step or third, however you look at it, if you don't include the elders. We told you the person, we told you their sin, and we told you to get involved. The question is, did you? If you didn't, you sinned. You sinned against your brother. You sinned against the Lord. You sinned against this body. And you failed to love that person. You know, you hear people saying things like, well, you know, church discipline doesn't work. You know what doesn't work? Is the congregation. That's who doesn't work. God knows what's best. His his methods are perfect. And so when he says this is the best way to restore somebody and you never see it work, it's because it's our fault. That's why. Because the congregation is lazy, because the congregation doesn't take the effort. Each person, every husband, every wife, every high school, every junior high, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you know the person or not. Every single person sends contacts, calls, emails that person. So they hear the full voice of the full church and they're hit by hundreds, literally hundreds of loving, encouraging exhortations to repent. I'm telling you, that is powerful. And we've done it here. There's been times when people have come back. And I talk to them and say, man, I kept getting these letters from people. They kept coming. They kept every, every day I thought, you know, I get them in the mailbox. I have this big wad. You know, I never got any letters. And now I got a whole wad day after day. And at first I was just going to throw them away. But I just thought, you know, I better read them. And every time I read them, man, I just wept. I wept. And then I, I didn't want to stop my sin. And then I get another batch the next day and another batch the next day. And people were calling me and stopping by my work and saying, man, we're praying for you you brother man turn from it and finally he broke the reason it usually doesn't work is because the congregation doesn't work that's what's broken so when the elders get up here and when they make an announcement you take action because now it's your responsibility as an entire congregation to take action. You know, all you have to do is get a little card, a little note, anything, and just write on there, you know, hey, so-and-so, I know I don't know you. I don't think we've ever even talked. But I'm praying for you, brother. And I know that God's will is best for you. I'd encourage you to just turn from this sin and come back to church and Maybe I can get meet you for the first time. Maybe we can have lunch together or something. Please turn back to the Lord. Sign your name and put it out there. We're not talking about some big treaty, big volume. Just write them a note. Just let them know. You know their problem. You're praying for them. You encourage them to do what's right. And I'm telling you, that kind of church discipline works. It works big time. G. Campbell Morgan has said in his commentary in this text, quote, any church of Jesus Christ is weak in proportion in which its members allow false pity or sentiment to prevent their being faithful to this great work of attempting to show an erring brother his fault in order that he may be restored, end quote. Now, I know a lot of you have done this, and I praise God for that, but not near enough. It's always the exception, the small minority, the remnant of faithful people. We want full force involvement. That's what works. 
Not when everybody hears the announcement and goes, whoa, he's in sin and forget about it. I guess he won't be coming here anymore. That's not loving. That's selfishness. But what happens if the person gets bombarded, you know, hundreds of letters and calls and emails and visits and still hardens his heart? Then what? Look at the middle of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The word Gentile is a reference to a heathen, pagan, godless person. A tax collector was a Jew who, who, like Matthew himself, who's writing this, bought into the Roman franchise of collecting taxes so he could exploit and rob his own countrymen. Both terms describe a godless person who needs salvation. Otherwise, they'd never be what they are. He's not saying, okay, treat him as a Gentile tax collector. Go be mean to him, scorn him, you know, turn your nose up at him when you see him on the street. No, Jesus called Matthew. Jesus called Zacchaeus. He sent Paul to preach to the Gentiles because they were godless and they needed salvation. This is made clear in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul, speaking to church discipline, says this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And here we're told that when someone refuses to repent of their sins, when they're caught in some trespass, listen, don't associate with them anymore. Don't fellowship with them as a fellow believer now qualified don't treat him as an enemy and you think you should not talk to him anymore no you still talk to him but when you do talk to him you admonish him as a brother so if you come in contact yes you admonish and that's what we're supposed to be doing this is the process of church discipline persons in sin you go to them in private if he doesn't repent one or two more if he doesn't Take it to the elders. We still take it to the church. We still, you say, this guy's not even a Christian. He just needs Jesus. And you try and witness to him, evangelize him. But you don't have fellowship with him as if he's a fellow believer because he's obviously not. He doesn't love the Lord. All right, third, you need to understand the purpose of church discipline. And this is probably one of the, the most misunderstood aspects of church discipline what is the purpose what is the motive you know you talk to people church discipline sounds kind of mean and unloving and judgmental and you know why do we do this you know well it's not so the elders can give an announcement and you can all go away with a bit of information you know if that was it then why do it no the first and primary reason is to restore somebody look at look at matthew 18 verse 15 again, I mean it says right there, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The first priority is obviously not punitive, not judgmental. You aren't punishing somebody. You're trying to correct their errant behavior. And that's why he says, if he listens, you have won your brother. Won him what? Won him back to obedience and righteousness and following the Lord again. That's, that's obviously the key purpose of the whole thing. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. We'll see that there. Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives a single verse on church discipline. But what's great is it's just 
loaded. This one little verse tells us a lot of great things. Galatians 6, 1. Notice here, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Now here, restoration is obviously in in view, and it's for anyone who is spiritual. That doesn't mean you have to be a spiritual giant or a leader in the church. It just means you have to be right with the Lord, walking in the spirit, having your sins confessed, the beams out of your own eye. And he says, if you see anyone in any trespass, notice not just sins against you. So even if you don't like the NAS reading of Matthew 18, here it is. So you got to still deal with it. Um, He says, you restore such a one and do it gently, he says, and looking to yourself so that you are not tempted. So actually there's three goals mentioned in this verse, which we'll get to a little bit more. The first is restoration of the unrepentant person. Secondly, self-examination. And if you've ever had to confront anybody, you know, the first, all you can think about when you have to do this is what? Oh, I'm a sinner. Who am I to talk to them? I'm not, I'm not any more righteous than they are. I mean, you're just racked with, you know, doubts and fears because you know what a sinner you are. The only difference is, is you're a sinner and they're a sinner, but you're confessing yours and they aren't. So not only that, it's protection. So you aren't tempted and really protection for the greater body. So that's what church discipline is for. First and foremost, the restoration of the sinning brother or sister. What is another reason? Well, another reason, and I'm not even going to give you any verses on this because you know this. um, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. So we know all Christians are to love the Lord. That's just, you know, ABCs of Christianity. And the only way you can show love to somebody is the Lord by obeying him. You can't show love ever if you're disobeying. Rebellion doesn't show love to the Lord. So Jesus says, practice church discipline. So if you love Jesus, you will practice church discipline out of love for him. It's clear. So that's another reason we practice church discipline. Third, we practice church discipline in order to maintain purity in the church. You know, we already looked at when, when you have to go confront somebody, you have examine your own self because as soon as you have to do that, it starts, you know, scaring you. (laughs) You start thinking, man, you know, I, do I have any things in my life? And that's good. It's purifying. And what you need to realize is the church gives the most glory to God when it's the most holy. And free from sin. The church is more zealous. It offers better worship. Better evangelism. Grows faster in sanctification. Everything that is good. Always comes from holiness. Holiness is what makes the church thrive. Like it's supposed to thrive. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a scathing rebuke. Where Paul writes this chapter to the Corinthians because there was a man, he was caught in immorality, he was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, and the Corinthians are going, you know, we're so loving and we're so kind that we're actually tolerating this guy. We're letting him come in and fellowship with us, and aren't we cool? Isn't this great? I mean, isn't our tolerance, you know, to be commended? 
This is what Paul says. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do to do with judging outsiders? The implied answer is nothing. Do you not judge those who are within the church? The implied answer is, of course. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Now that is a pretty clear passage, isn't it? It's begging for a whole series here. But the whole point that I want to get here is it's not loving to not deal with the person who's in sin. It's not loving to the person and it's not loving to the body because their bad example will act like leaven that will permeate the body and infect the whole church. We're all aware here of the you know big discussions about you know, illegal Ill immigrants and all that stuff. This is a perfect example. You know, we have laws that say you can't you know come into our country unless you do it in the proper ways, and a bunch of people sneak in, and what happens? Well, the businessmen kind of like it because they can pay the people under the table, they don't have to pay taxes, they can rob from the government, and these other people, they can just pay them, they can pay them cheaper, and that's great. So everybody's kind of benefiting from all these illegal aliens. The problem is, is now it's becoming such a huge deal because we can't let all the Afghanistans come in and people from Iraq and Iran and, you know, any other country just sneak into our borders and say, well, we'll give you a bus ride to the border and you can go back home. Um, So now we're trying to be a little equitable. So as soon as the president says, you know, we need to do something, there's a huge uprising. Why? Because for a long time, people knew that these people were breaking the law and they weren't doing anything about it. And now they're actually on TV saying, we have our rights. You aren't even citizens. Go home. (laughs) Rights to what? You have the rights to prison. That's what your rights are. You see, when we're in the church here, and you see somebody in sin, like, I know that guy's shacking up his girlfriend, but you know, I don't want to lose his friendship, and so I'm not going to talk to him about it. 
this person's into pornography and this person's dressed immodestly and this person's doing this and this person's doing that and this person's doing this and we're just not going to bother. Then what happens is other people go, well, if that person can do it, I can do it. If that person can get away with it, then I can do it. And then if you ever go to confront that person, well, hey, I may be doing it, but I know 10 other people are doing it. So you have to deal with them too. No, you have to deal with them. I'm dealing with you. You see, and what happens is the church then becomes unholy. And when the church is unholy, I don't care how excited and emotional people get on Sunday. It is not giving glory to God. God demands holiness. He wants a chaste and pure bride. Holiness, spirit, and truth. It is that holy and acceptable lifestyle, which is offered up, which is the acceptable sacrifice. And if it's not holy, I don't care what people feel about it. It doesn't give honor to God. And so this whole text is about that very thing. And notice Paul says, I've judged them. And he says, are we not to judge those within the church? I mean, there's some people that go, judge not lest you be judged. What is that text? That's Matthew 7, 1. Jesus is saying, don't judge hypocritically. He says, remove the beam out of your eye, then judge. Yes, we are to judge each other in the church. Does that scare you? You're commanded to do it. And if you don't, you're sinning. It's in there. Read it. Last verse. Now you go through the scriptures. There's a lot of other scriptures that talk about the need to protect the church from false doctrine. For instance, in Titus... Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, Reject the factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sitting and being self-condemned. You have a factious man? We had a man here one time who was teaching false doctrine. He was going around. He was slandering people. He was giving false accusations. We talked to him. He wouldn't stop. We talked to him. We didn't stop. We said, hey, you're not welcome here. Do not come back. Why? Because we're protecting you. There's always people in the church who start gathering little disgruntled people into these little huddles, you know, and they're always always standing out to the side going, look at those people. Yeah, they're doing this. and Yeah, I think this will me too. And they kind of feed off of each other. That is just carnality. That is rebellion. And I'm telling you, when the elders see that happening, when you see that happening, it should be like, you know, go for it. And say, you guys need to repent. You guys need to repent. I'm confronting you. Stop. You are to reject the factious man after the first and second warning. A fourth reason to practice church discipline is that the people in the church would fear sinning themselves. I don't know about you. Whenever church discipline is done, do you ever sit out there and think, man, I hope they don't do that to me. That's good. It's like, man, I'm, I'm getting my act together, man. I don't want to read in my name. I mean, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, the couple who sold that piece of property, and it was theirs. The church didn't say, thou shalt sell your property and give it to us. It was theirs. They had the choice to sell it. They could have given an eighth, a tenth, half, whatever they wanted. But in order to get honor from men, they decided they were going to give the property partially part of the price of the property to the church, but tell the church they were giving all to kind of like, we're really sacrificing, and then they could get honor from men. And you know what happened? They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God killed them both. They dropped dead, and they carried out their bodies. And you know what the text says? And great fear came upon the whole congregation. No kidding. No kidding. 
I mean, could you imagine if we were having, you know, communion Sunday here, one of the pastors or elders gets up here and says, you know, we're having communion. And, you know, he reads that part about, you know, make sure you examine your own self and judge the body rightly so you don't eat and drink judgment to yourself. And talks about in Corinth, some people were sick and God even killed some people because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. And you're going, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden the, the bread's passed out and, okay, let's partake. And, and about 15 people go, oh, and then it's like, whoa, was that? And then, you know, well, they're all carried outside. And then the pastor says, now it's time for the wine. <laughs> Would that make you think? That is a good thing. You know, God wasn't trying to restore Ananias and Sapphira. He was using them as an example so that we would fear. The whole congregation then thought, man, those people dropped dead. This whole church thing is serious, man. God wants holiness in his church. And that is a good thing. Great fear came upon all of them. And so one of the reasons we do church discipline is so that we'll all fear sinning ourselves as a deterrent. Fifth, finally, we're to practice church discipline to maintain a good witness for Christ in the world. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, Paul, this is like the very end of the verse, he says this. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The report of your disobedience has reached or your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Notice that when they were faithful to deal with people in sin and false teachers, Paul says, everybody's hearing about it. That's why church discipline is good. Because then the unbelievers go, man... Calvary Bible Church, man, they're not like most churches. I mean, if you fall into sin and you don't want to turn from it, they tell everybody. And man, the whole church like comes after you. I mean, I heard that, you know, there's like people lined up in front of this guy's house. And he got hundreds of letters. Man. Now you might think to yourself, that would scare people away. They'd never want to come to a legalistic church like this. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. As a matter of fact, there are many people, if you've ever, if you come to the family fellowship service and hear baptismal testimonies, there's a lot of people who said the reason I come here is because they do church discipline. Or the reason I came here from another church is because they do church discipline here. John MacArthur says he thinks that one of the most significant factors in the growth of Grace Community Church is the fact that they do church discipline. Why? Because Christians who love the Lord love holiness. They want to be held accountable. They want people to love them. They want people to rescue them if they're caught in a trespass. And so they're drawn to the light. They're drawn to the truth. Because they're lovers of truth and children of light. 
And so our witness is always the strongest when we're the purest and most holy. You can go to Revelation chapter 2. You can look at, you know, the letters to the churches there. And Jesus commends the church of Ephesus. Do you remember why? He commends the church of Ephesus for not tolerating wickedness and false teachers. He then goes on to rebuke the church of Pergamum and to rebuke the church of Thyatira. You know why? Because they were tolerating wickedness and false teaching. He says this to Pergamum in Revelation 2.16. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. How would you like Jesus to say that about this church? I am coming to make war with you. Please don't. (laughs) Then get them out of there. He wants his church to be holy, a pure, a chaste bride. Because that's what gives him the most glory. That's what causes Christians to grow the most, to have the most joy, to have the greatest impact in the world. So as you leave here today, take it upon your own self to get involved in church discipline. If you see that brother or sister in Christ, you know they're in sin, go to him in private very gently, very kindly. Say, you know, I'm not very good at this. And, you know, I just, you know, I don't want to offend you. But I see this in your life. And uh, it's not right. And the Bible says this. You need, you need to stop. And you've done church discipline. And if they don't, get one or two and tell them again. And if we ever have to stand up here as an elder board and say, so-and-so sin then you think, I have to do something now. Every one of you individually, I have to do something now. And then take action and rescue that wayward sheep. And this is how the church grows, maintains holiness, and gives glory to God. And that's why we do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just being able to survey all these texts. And Father, there were so many others I wish we could have got to, but we couldn't. Father, I just thank you that Calvary Bible Church is is seeking to be faithful in this area. Father, I pray that all of us would be rebuked for those times when we know we should have said something and we didn't. And Father, help us to be faithful, more faithful. And Father, if we do have to go to that final step and tell it to the church, I pray all of us would just go home that very day and just take a few moments to do our part so that collectively, as a body, we may send one gigantic message. We love you and we want you back. Father, help us to be that way for your glory, for the love of each other, and for our testimony in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.